Next, let's look at the concept of habit, an abstraction that somebody made up a long time ago. If we think back to an extremely long time ago, where there might have been only one or two hundred words in our primitive vocabulary, I would bet that habit was not one of them. Probably the only words were nouns to designate things like a tree or water or tiger, or verbs to designate actions like run, look, cook. When a word represents an abstraction, it means that we can't see it, touch it, taste it, lift it, or put it in a wheelbarrow. However, despite this lack of tangibility, we can believe in it enough so that we can create our own experience of it. In other words, a habit is not concrete. We can't weigh a habit, so we can't say that is a two-pound habit or that is a 16-pound habit. No, instead, we need faith in our belief about habits. Of course, this does not seem like an abstraction to individuals who are creating and experiencing their habit, but it is abstract to those around them. In order for those around them to get any idea of the strength of a habit, they have to see frowning, hear groaning, see perspiration, hear whining or complaining. The equation that we have made up seems to be the louder the groaning, the complaining, the stronger the habit. Those are all possible actions which the person with the strong habit is only too eager to provide. Is there a word that we could use to change our experience of habit as an abstraction? Let me suggest using the word pattern, an abstraction that doesn't have as many disadvantages as habit. We can use pattern to describe some activity that we do regularly, for example, smoking. However, when we say we have a pattern of smoking, somehow we don't conjure up the old concepts of strength or morality that we do when we use the word habit. This becomes especially obvious when we add the word bad to habit. Habits have strength in our belief system, and if you have been doing something for a long time, like smoking, then supposedly the habit is much stronger than if it were new, since it depends on the number of repetitions I might add that we seem to be oblivious to how well practiced we are at stopping smoking. We make one stop for every start, or we couldn't ever start up, light up again. We can even invoke the strongest notion of habit by calling a habit addiction. When we go that far, we have given ourselves extra benefit if we want to continue smoking. This gives us a chance to see ourselves as addicts and now we see the addiction as being in control. The addiction makes us do things that we don't want to do. Now we believe the whole thing is out of our hands, even though the cigarette is in our hands. Now we can also believe we need outside help, lots of outside help to regain control of ourselves. All this reminds me of an advertisement from a local hospital that runs a smoking cessation program. The first written line under the picture of somebody smoking is how to quit smoking. Beneath that line, in slightly smaller letters, are the words, the first step, admit you're hooked. Now, think about that sentence. As a first step, that seems pretty ridiculous. When a fish is hooked, the fisherman, who is somebody other than the fish, is in charge. 
the fish itself is relatively helpless and dependent. So when we translate the meaning of being hooked, it suggests that we freely use our choice and our freedom to say that we are not free. Instead, we wind up saying that we are hooked and helpless. In other words, the cigarette habit, our addiction, etc., is in charge or in control of us. The ad requires that we do not see it as the other way around. The message in this ad is that you need outside help to stop smoking, and you can't do it by yourself. By the way, if you own your behavior, who else can act for you? Wouldn't it be useful to look at smoking through a similar belief system? In other words, we could say that changing our smoking pattern is trivial and easy. If you did this, who could stop you, even though it would be abnormal to think this way? If you played around with this way of viewing things, you might even begin laughing about what a needless struggle you had been creating for yourself. And since laughter is the best medicine, you might immediately, even quicker than lighting up a cigarette, feel better and more relaxed. By laughing at ourselves and relaxing, we reduce the so-called need for a cigarette. Each time we reach in our pocket or purse for a cigarette without thinking, or outside of our awareness, we can laugh and remember to do nothing about smoking. The more often we reach, the more we practice. What is interesting is that if we chuckle at ourselves, we can feel good immediately. That way, we can experience a positive feeling even faster than lighting a cigarette. Incidentally, this positive feeling doesn't have negative side effects like smoking does. As we play the game by choosing that response, we will soon experience a reduction of our interest in cigarettes, since they become less and less relevant to us. Another abstraction I would like to mention is procrastination. Recently, I was talking to a client who said that he would like to stop smoking, but he had been procrastinating. I said, you obviously haven't been procrastinating enough. He looked at me in a peculiar way and said he didn't understand. I said, if you use procrastination for you instead of against you, you would not be smoking. Again, he blinked, and I continued, if you procrastinated lighting long enough, you would see that you wouldn't need to stop smoking. Once again, this is too simple and too obvious. Therefore, it can't work, right? Never mind the utility or the effectiveness of the strategy. Since I have been clear all along that I am only making this up, I want to urge you again not to take me seriously. I simply invite you to play around with these concepts. You might end up being as abnormal as I am. Remember, the reason I do not smoke 51 weeks of the year is because I am not doing anything at all about smoking. Another way of saying I am doing nothing or no thing. One of the side effects of this approach to disappearing smoking is that you might even end up with a very positive feeling about yourself, called high self-esteem. This side effect usually follows when we are operating from a position of choice. In other words, 
I run me and you run you. In the contrasting position of we are victims of other people and other things outside of our control and they run us. I want to hasten to add that I am not especially for or against smoking. I am not taking a moral stance that smoking is bad. Instead, I am saying that smoking is not advantageous to my health or to your health. Read the Surgeon General's report. If we had eye tissue in our lungs, we would never smoke. What I'm calling to your attention is that getting smoke in your eyes is awfully painful. What that means is that our eyes have the capacity to tell us, ouch! As a result, we are careful to keep the smoke out of them. Unfortunately for us, and fortunately for the tobacco industry, our lungs don't have the ability to say, ouch! They are mute. This allows us to put smoke in them and call it relaxing. Then we can add the thought that we can't help it, or that stopping smoking at this time is too difficult. But really, how can there be difficulty in doing nothing? Speaking of stopping smoking, I want to point out that you will stop smoking. It's not a question of your not stopping, only when. I point this out because it is clear that dead people don't smoke, so all of us will stop smoking eventually. However, you can choose not to light up earlier if you wish, even though it won't prevent you from dying of something else. One benefit will be that you won't experience as many health problems if you don't light up again. Marlowe concludes, Before ending, I want to add a few more comments. I am aware that people will go to impressive lengths in their behavior when they believe their addiction or their habits are in control. The father of one of my clients was in the hospital because of severe emphysema. He had such difficulty breathing that he needed to be in an oxygen tent. Of course, there were no smoking signs around the room, which the patient respected. However, about every couple of hours, he would unzip his tent, grab his cigarettes, go around the corner to the lounge and smoke a cigarette. He would cough and wheeze, come shuffling back into the room, climb back into the bed, zip up the tent and collapse, sweating profusely as if he had done a day's work in five minutes. He was free to do that. Nobody could stop him. They certainly had tried, and he tried hard as well. Yet he used his sovereignty to continue to smoke because he believed his addiction was in control, and further, he was weak-willed and had no willpower. I was very impressed with his willpower to continue smoking. I am not sure that I could manage to do what he was doing to himself. I am also clear that I like myself better than to use my sovereignty to do that to myself. Perhaps we live in a culture where it is normal to not like ourselves, to think that way down deep we are basically rotten. If we feel bad about ourselves, then it would be natural for us to attempt to escape the pain and want to feel good. That is what smoking promises. The advertisements read, Alive with Pleasure. The names of the cigarettes are also quite promising. Bel Air, Merit, True, Cavalier, Cool, Parliament, Luckies. They are not called sludge, tar, wheeze, or cough. It's interesting to look at that combination. We have been programmed to feel bad about ourselves 
so we are very interested in feeling better. Yet being bad, we don't deserve to feel good. What a masterful stroke it would be <clears throat> to combine moving forwards feeling good while simultaneously moving towards feeling bad. That is what we do when we light up. We move toward relaxation while assaulting our lungs at the same moment. What an economy of action. We can accomplish two actions at once, sort of like killing two birds with one stone. Only we happen to be the bird. Incidentally, I think this economy of action is the basis of all of our addiction. Another approach that some people have found useful when they want to stop smoking is to imagine what it would be like to be around for their children's graduation or marriage. If you are older, you may want to see your grandchildren graduate or marry. Whatever excuse you want to use to stop smoking is okay. Just like any excuse you want to use to continue smoking is okay. I was smoking my usual 30 to 40 cigarettes a day with an additional two or three packs during my monthly all-night poker sessions, usually on a Friday night. One Saturday morning, I got home at 8 and I slept until 10. Was picked up by a friend, Dave, to go and introduce him to yet another friend, Bert. My mouth tasted like a sewer and I did not ever want to smoke another cigarette. Bert noticed that I was not smoking and offered me one of his. It happened to be my brand. So after turning down the first couple of offers, I finally accepted and lit up. I took three puffs and felt so dizzy that I stubbed it out. I once again reviewed what a good time this would be to quit. However, I also began reviewing how many times I had tried hard before and failed. I was thinking normally then, and I saw my failures as an indication of a lack of self-discipline. On my way back to my house, I began to look at things a little differently. I asked Dave if he would do me a favor. He quickly said yes. I think he was fully expecting to be asked to stop at a store or gas station so I could get another pack of cigarettes. Instead, I said that I would like him to bet one dollar of his money against twenty dollars of my money that I wouldn't smoke a cigarette for a year. After some hesitation, he accepted the bet. I think it was June 28th or 29th. What was fortunate was that I had put myself in a position where it was clear that I could have a cigarette. I was not terrifying myself with no smoking forever, with a cold turkey. However, that first cigarette would cost me $20 of my own money. As I looked at that from the illusion of choice, I said to myself, I certainly could have a cigarette, but I sure don't want to spend $20 for one smoke. I amazed myself with my reaction to other people smoking as well as cigarette ads. Now I was operating in the illusion of choice and I was not looking at cigarettes and people smoking them with a longing for the forbidden fruit. Smoking was readily available to me, but at that price, I didn't want to smoke. Sure, I could have cheated on my friend, but I didn't want to cheat myself. 
I laughed at myself a lot those first days. I would begin to make an urge to smoke, often outside of awareness, and begin to reach for the pack that I was carrying. Then I would say, sure, I could, but I don't want to. This was my way of disappearing my self-administered urge. I saw my physical twinges as pins and needles of waking up. I did not make up the illusion of an overwhelming habit fighting to make me light up as I had in previous situations when I gave in and lit up. I used each occasion to solidify my sense of choice and freedom, so I had numerous opportunities for practice. I was no longer normal in regard to smoking. If $20 isn't enough for you, you can make 50 or 100 Bet with a friend, not with your spouse or other family members where the money is in common. Another possibility is donating 50 or or $100 to a cause that you are very much opposed to. Don't bother to tell anybody, just enjoy your freedom privately. When people observe that you are not smoking, they will likely ask if you have stopped. When you say yes, they are likely to ask what you did to stop implying that you had to do something or something. You can repeat that you did nothing or no thing and chuckle at their attempt to make sense out of your answer. If you don't like to bet, here's another angle. You can make an agreement with yourself that you can smoke as much as you want to as long as you light each cigarette with a $5 bill. Or you can make it 10 or 20 if you are affluent. If you want to smoke, light a $5 bill, light your cigarette with it, and then let the $5 bill burn to ashes so that you don't use it over again for other cigarettes. Several clients have reported that this is a very useful agreement with self. It fits right in with ease and simplicity of not lighting up, in effect, doing nothing about smoking. In this case, not lighting up really pays off in cash. Finally, here is the big joke, the illusion of normalcy in numbers. Since many people, perhaps 45 or 50 million, are making up the same illusion of addiction to smoking, if you are making up a similar one, you will find that there is a lot of company for you. You won't be alone in your belief about addiction to smoking. There are all sorts of cessation smoking programs aimed at helping sovereign individuals to play the game of helpless victim in relation to their addiction. If you were the only person in the country who smoked and wanted to quit but couldn't, there would be little understanding of acceptance of your plight or habit. I might add that smoking cessation programs do not work Smokers use programs either positively or negatively. If they don't light up, they become non-smokers, no matter what the program is called. If they continue to light up, they continue to be smokers, no matter what the name of the program. It is amazing that when a large number of people agree to participate in an insanity, it begins to seem normal. Such is the case with smoking. Smokers do spend a lot of money and they jeopardize their health. It appears that most smokers are equally dedicated to their belief regarding the compulsion to smoke. 
They believe in their inability to control their smoking in spite of the fact that they have enough control to light up. They appear to be making the addiction responsible for their behavior. So I'll end by saying that I think I'm worthwhile, and I think you are worthwhile. I am not helpless to make up anything that I want. Neither are you. We do what we believe. You already have the freedom. Make up whatever you want. Have fun. Enjoy yourself.